Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast, Episode 116, Frederick Schauer, The Proof. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang, from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Fred Schauer. Fred is the Harrison Distinguished Professor of Law at the University of Virginia. Fred's prolific scholarly career has spanned constitutional law, specifically First Amendment, evidence, and jurisprudence and legal philosophy. For our podcast today, we are discussing Fred's new book, The Proof, which will be released by Harvard University Press in April. In it, Fred makes good on the book's subtitle, which is Uses of Evidence in Law, Politics, and Everything Else. Proof, truth, and evidence are, of course, big news these days, and not just in legal circles. Pick almost any controversial current event, COVID and COVID vaccines, the January 6th attack on the Capitol, climate change. No matter what the event or issue, there's a persistent concern about evidence, proof, and the problem of misinformation. Into these public debates steps Fred's book an attempt to bring some of the insights of evidence law to bear on policy debates and everyday life. As I discuss in the interview, it's often hard to distill a book successfully in a single podcast episode, but I think that there are some grand themes that come out of Fred's book, and it's to these themes that our discussion will turn. Fred, delighted to have you. Welcome to Excited Utterance. Thank you. Happy to do this, and thank you for including me. So first, congratulations on your book, which is ambitiously entitled The Proof, and I have to say, a thoroughly enjoyable journey through the landscape of evidence law and theory. Let's start at the beginning. What got you started on this project? Why did you write The Proof, and why is it called The Proof? Okay, so I've been teaching evidence on and off for 20 plus years. Historically, it has not been the major area of my scholarship, but over the last five years or so, I've started writing much more extensively about questions of evidence that intrigue me as they come up in teaching, as I read the literature and so on. So it's been my practice for a long time that after I write some number of articles about something, I think I come to the conclusion, there's a book here. So books are not my only avenue of scholarship, but they are one of them. And it's a process that I enjoy, especially as with this book, if it's a book that is written as a book, not a patched together collection of previous articles, but still has distinct themes in different chapters rather than one argument that progresses from beginning to end. So one of the difficulties of doing a podcast episode on a book is that there's usually a lot that's going on. Yeah. And you can 
oppose me or tell me ultimately that I'm wrong, but I'm going to try to explore your book using four themes or threads that I see in the book, and I'm going to see if I can cover most of it by using them. So, Okay, that, that sounds fine, and I should say, since you asked me about the title, the interesting backstory is that the original title of the book, arrogantly conceived, was Evidence. And some number of publishers, including the Harvard Press that wound up publishing it, said that's not going to work because people who do online searches and things of that sort will be looking for a law school textbook or law school casebook on evidence. We've got to distinguish it from that. So that's what led to a back and forth with the press about possible titles. As an academic, my preference would have been something more boring and dry. As a publisher that's concerned with the bottom line, their preference is something that will attract attention, independent of its accuracy. So the proof came out of that with the subtitle of uses of evidence in law, politics, and everything else. Well, and I think that the subtitle there is the truly accurate description of what you're doing, which I think is so interesting that you've taken a lot of the things that we've talked about for decades in the scholarly literature, and you're trying to apply them to current topics in politics and public policy and everyday life. And I think that that's a major contribution that you're doing here. Thank you. Let me move to the first major theme. So I think the first major theme in the book seems to be about how people generally need to be more mindful of the burden of proof, that we tend to allow beyond a reasonable doubt to infuse itself into all kinds of inappropriate places where perhaps beyond a reasonable doubt is overly strict. So tell us a little bit about this mistake. What's going on here? Is this just a cognitive error that we make when we transfer scripts from other contexts, such as the criminal law, into everyday life? Or is there something deeper going on? I think it's both. It's partly what you say, that especially lay people and journalists are very familiar with the criminal law from television and everything else. So anything that even looks a little bit like law they are inclined to shoehorn into the criminal law model. So there's that. And the other explanation, and this pervades the whole book, I think people are uncomfortable with probabilistic reasoning, especially, and I don't mean the mathematical version, I think the version of probabilistic reasoning in which people have to make decisions even in the face of doubt, uncertainty, and less than proof beyond the reasonable doubt evidence. And because they're uncomfortable with this, there is a tendency of political figures, ordinary people, and journalists perhaps especially, to put all evidence into the category of no doubt about it, proof beyond the reasonable doubt, or something close to worthless. And you see this in the annoying tendency of people to say, 
There's no concrete evidence of this. There's no hard evidence of this. There's no solid evidence of this. Every one of these annoying adjectives suggests that if there's no concrete, hard, solid, conclusive evidence of something, we can discard it. And a running theme of the book is very often when there is some evidence of something, that's the best we have, and we should use it, depending on what the consequences are and what the context is. So this is the theme in your book sometimes that you call for what, which is that we should always be mindful of context and what's the purpose that we're using the evidence for. Okay, so another theme which you've really quite famously explored in your book, Profiles, Probabilities, and Stereotypes, is about making inferences from populations. And when I say populations, that's other people or things or even past events. And evidence scholars will, of course, know that the law always has a particular aversion to this, whether we see it in the character rule or sampling or rules against naked statistical evidence. And what you point out in your book is that we use these kinds of inferences much more easily and readily in regular life. So in which direction does your advice go here? Should the law get more relaxed about this kind of evidence? Or should we, in regular life, be more skeptical of the evidence? I think it's more the former. My goal, certainly in this book, is not to reform the law. And there are lots of places in the law where the aversion to drawing specific inferences from population-based data is perfectly justifiable, but these are law-specific reasons. So there are good reasons why the law has its traditional aversion to character evidence, but there are also good reasons why outside of the law we use it all the time and we can't possibly avoid it. And some dimensions of the law don't easily transfer into other contexts. So at least one of the justifications for the character rule in the law is the idea that people shouldn't be punished twice for what they have done. So if they've committed some wrong and been held liable in a civil case or punished in a criminal case for what they've done wrong, and if that wrong can then subsequently be used in a later trial, it looks as if they are being subsequently punished for what they've done before and already been punished. And as it is commonly put in bad movies, they have paid their debt to society. And to use it in subsequent cases seems unfair. That doesn't carry over very well to real life. We ought to be reluctant to accept late night rides from people who have been multiply convicted of driving under the influence. We should be reluctant to deal with merchants who on multiple past occasions have been found liable for consumer fraud or misleading advertising or something of that sort. So I think this is one area where maybe there's less to learn from law than people might think. But then again, that's the point. We shouldn't transfer what we do in the law to other settings. Moreover, I think there's a different but related tendency 
people are worried, often justifiably, about certain dimensions of racial and ethnic profiling, and they assume erroneously that the idea of profile is, for some reason, suspect. Similarly, for reasons uh, that I go into at great length in the earlier book that you mentioned, we are properly troubled about lots of racial and ethnic and gender and other kinds of stereotypes. But that doesn't mean that stereotyping in general as a conceptual matter is wrong. And that's why in this book, I use a couple of what I like to think of as very low temperature examples. And being a car person, I like to use cars as an example. So if I have a choice between buying a Subaru and a used Subaru and a used Yugo to take a notoriously unreliable car from the former Yugoslavia. Even if we hold the number of miles equal, even if we hold constant some number of other things, we know that Subarus in general are reliable. We know that Yugos in general are not and all other things being equal, and maybe even all other things not being equal, we engage in population to individual inference about a particular Subaru more likely being reliable than a particular Yugo, and so on. In lots of other areas, we do the same thing. A somewhat more controversial example that I use here and I've used in the past, although less controversial than racial and ethnic profiling, is the population to individual inferences that we use when we think about dog breeds. Even apart from the issue of whether pit bulls should be prohibited or not, which some number of countries and some number of American communities do, it is not surprising that families with boisterous small children are more likely to want golden retrievers than pit bulls. And over and over and over again, this kind of inference from group data, population level data to individual instances or individual decisions is everywhere. It's so funny that you moved on to the pitfall example, because that was the thing that came up in my mind that you said low temperature. And I thought, you don't have to go very far to start raising the temperature. That's exactly and right. Yes. Once you move to dog breeds, you already end up with all kinds of controversy over people who don't like the stereotyping of pit bulls as being dangerous. And you know, there are many dog advocates that would say that has nothing to do with the breed. Let me try a different theme as well. So this idea, and I think I often argue it in evidence circles myself, is your point about compared to what. And I think this theme reflects the pragmatism that I love in your scholarship in evidence generally, that all too frequently people make the mistake of thinking in binary terms about evidence, that evidence is good or bad. But the question is not whether it is good or bad. The question is whether the evidence is good enough. So what kinds of implications does recognizing that point have for the way that we make decisions? Right. So in this and many other things, this is a lesson that I get perhaps principally from my spouse, a previous participant in this very podcast, uh, Barbara Spellman. 
herself a distinguished scholar of the psychology and the law of evidence. And she's the one that initially reminded, probably puts it too gently, but reminded me about the compared to what idea. So typically, we don't just go out and look for evidence for its own sake. We are looking for evidence in order to try to answer a particular question. In the criminal law, it's did some defendant do it or not. But in everyday life, we are faced with the compared to what question in almost every decision we make. So there's a part of the book in which I talk about evidence in the context of art authentication. Is this a genuine Vermeer? Is this a genuine Botticelli? Not art evaluation, but art authentication. Is something a fake or not? So if I'm considering buying a work of art, uh, given my resources, it's not going to be a Botticelli or a Vermeer, but I at least have to consider the possibility that it's a fake. So then the question is, what evidence do I have? Maybe the evidence that I have is not very good, but I still have to make a buy or no buy decision. And if I have to make a buy or no buy decision, compared to what looms large, I might say, this isn't very good evidence that this is an authentic whatever it is that I am considering buying, but there's no other evidence that's available to me. And therefore, this is as good evidence as I have. So when I look to the compared to what question, I may say, this is the best evidence I have. That's the first step. Then the second step after the compared to what question is, if this is the best evidence I have, is it good enough? And then we come back to the question, is it good enough depending on what it is that I want to decide or what it is that I want to do? So a gazillion years ago, when I first learned about probability as an MBA student, one of the things that was drummed into our heads was the idea of expected value. And expected value is still something that I think about constantly, and it runs throughout this book. That is, what is the probability that something is this way or that way, and what turns on it? So a 10% chance of winning a million dollars might be a pretty good bet, and so on and so on. So for this audience, I don't have to explain the idea of expected value, but certainly for me, expected value follows naturally from after the question of compared to what. So I know that your purpose in the book is not primarily or even at all about evidence law reform, but I think that this reminder here about compared to what is useful in many other areas of scholarship, I thought about the point you made about photographs, which is that photographs shouldn't be viewed as infallible evidence, but the mere fact that a photograph happens to represent someone's point of view or that there's Photoshop and the photograph can be fake doesn't mean that the photographic evidence is garbage. And I think we can make very similar points about forensics as well. You talk about ballistics and other forensics. Forensics evidence, of course, has its problems, but we have to be careful about throwing out the baby with the bathwater in this area. So final thread that I wanted to touch on involves two related topics in your book. One is what you call self-credentialing yeah. and the other epistemic trespassing. So this is 
Nobel Prize winners pontificating on areas that are not in their scientific field of expertise or athletes or celebrities who have no scientific expertise at all expressing views about issues that are not in their area and actually affecting public thinking. Tell us more about those issues. So what I call self-credentialing, and in the book, my entry into the topic is the common introductory phrase in almost every letter to the editor in the daily newspaper. As a psychiatrist, as a victim of an automobile accident, as a self-credentialing explaining why the author has some particular perspective. What troubles me is that often we assume that someone who was there or someone who was a participant, by virtue of having been there or by virtue of having been a participant, has some kind of privileged, almost absolutely privileged knowledge about some number of events. And this, of course, relates to what we were just talking about, because sometimes perspective is important but sometimes perspective is distorting. What we have learned from the psychologists is that being a participant in a traumatic event, the excited utterance exception to the hearsay rule notwithstanding, may distort memory, may distort recollection, and may distort recounting. So I'm suspicious as an evidentiary matter of taking a participant's view as necessarily better just because the person was in some way a participant. So one example I use in the book that some people will find controversial, but that's okay. The chief creator of the atomic bomb, Leo Shylard, if I'm pronouncing it right, gathered up some number of other scientists to urge President Truman not to use the atomic bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And it's an interesting question. Put aside whether the decision was right or wrong. At least at the time that Truman made the decision, he was fully aware of its destructive capacities. He was fully aware of how it was going to be used or how it could be used and what it could do and the loss of human life involved and everything else. Shylard's moral motivations are admirable. But on the question of once the bomb existed, should Truman drop it or not at a particular time? Once Hiroshima existed, should he drop it on Nagasaki? Should he wait to drop it at all? How should he calculate the relative importance of Japanese lives and American military lives? All of these are profound moral questions and it's not clear that Truman made the right decision, nor is it clear that he made the wrong decision. But one thing that's a little bit more clear to me is that on none of these does the technical ability actually to create an atomic bomb give the creator any comparative advantage or any comparative expertise. As you mentioned, Nobel Prize winners opining on things far removed from what they have won Nobel Prizes for, 
quarterbacks and point guards opining on things that have nothing to do with the skills involved in being a quarterback or a point guard are somewhat more obvious everyday examples. But I think this phenomenon, and I get the phrase epistemic trespassing from the philosopher Nathan Valentine, happens all the time, and we ought to be careful of it, especially these days when on issues of vaccination, climate change, to use the two most obvious examples, and many others, it is crucially important that we rely on expertise. It's just as crucially important that we understand where the appropriate boundaries of expertise and understand what experts are experts about. And in everyday discussion, in everyday political and policy debate, we don't always respect these boundaries. So how did I do? Those are the four themes. Have I missed any large themes that you wanted to make sure that our audience thought about, or should we leave it for them to read it in your book? I think you hit on all of them. I would just say a little bit more about your first one. That is, I think a running theme of the book is that probabilities matter a lot. And one of the things that flows from this, and we talked about it a little bit, but I'd I'd emphasize it again, is that very often not very good evidence is good enough for what we have to make a decision about. That in many contexts is likely to be controversial, but I think you hit on most of the important themes. Maybe one that I'd add is the idea of testimony, and I don't mean just testimony in court. How often do we rely on what other people tell us? And there are advantages and disadvantages of relying on testimony. There are things that we should worry about when we rely on testimony, but we rely on it all the time. And most of the information we get we get because someone has told us something, not because we've investigated it ourselves. I know when my birthday was because my mother told me and because it's on a piece of paper written by a public official in Newark, New Jersey. I have no firsthand knowledge. I know my birthday because of testimony. Most of the other things we know, we know because of testimony. And thinking about testimony is another important theme in the book and an important theme in modern philosophy. Philosophers, until last couple of decades, have not paid very much attention to testimony. Now they have. That's wonderful. And I try to use some of that learning in the book. I couldn't agree more. I think that literature on testimony is fascinating and actually has been very helpful in some of my recent scholarship. Interestingly, it's also about Hearsay testimony is how we actually learn about most of the way that the world works, and we don't like to use it in the law. Well, Fred, thanks for this discussion about the proof and more broadly, your effort to link evidence law and scholarship with hard problems in other contexts. Great having you on the show. I enjoyed doing it very much. Thank you. One of Fred's many talents is his ability to take what is complicated and make it plain and accessible. And to my view, the proof succeeds brilliantly on that score. It's an entertaining romp through much of the evidentiary scholarship that we know and love, but with an eye toward applying those insights outside the courtroom and instead to daily life. 
My hope is that the proof sparks more interest in this sort of migration from the courts to the court of public opinion, which is in dire need of greater precision and thoughtfulness about how to prove and ascertain facts. And I see this migration occurring in two ways. First, more interest among evidence academics in spreading our debates and discussions to the general public. But second, and conversely, perhaps members of the general public becoming more interested in these debates in the academy. And by the way, when I say evidence academics, I don't just mean the legal academy, but also epistemology, psychology, and other fields touching on decision-making, as we'll hear from later this season on this podcast. Whether it's paying attention to the burden of proof, being careful about our probabilistic judgments, thinking about evidence in degrees, or chastising experts, or in fact non-experts, who are outside their areas of expertise, all of the themes from Fred's book have something to contribute to public discourse. Being more careful about how we prove things will hopefully make our discussions less boisterous and less blatantly ideological and, frankly, more accurate. Perhaps on this score, I'm a bit of an idealist, but hey, I suppose that's my prerogative as an academic. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the University of Arkansas School of Law. The associate producer is Alex Nunn, and the production editor is Madeline DiPietro. Additional production assistance is provided by Francesca Rutherford, and music is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join us again next time when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof.